VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? We will see breakthroughs in technologies that we do not predict today that will have a material effect on the amount of carbon in this atmosphere, the way that we produce things, and the way that we are going to kind of adapt and survive through this phenomenon over the next uh, century, which is going to be, you know, it's really going to test the survival of our species. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. We have a very good one for you this week, but I must warn you, it's more than a little scary and a tad bit depressing, but we end on a positive note, I promise. All is not lost, necessarily. Of course, I'm talking about climate change, uh, which is obviously hard to avoid out here these days. We're in the teeth of fire season. Huge swathes of the state are literally on fire right now, and there's even bigger swathes that are kind of choking on quite literally toxic air. Thus far, we have been saved so far, in at least where I live in Oakland, but um, it's kind of lurking out there. But um, as I said, there's hope. And to provide it, I have brought on someone, well, something of a celebrity in tech circles out here. He is Dave Friedberg, who some of you will surely know as one of the four members of the All In podcast, which is a highly entertaining show um, out here with Jason Kalkanis, Chamath Palihapitiya, and David Sachs, and of course, Friedberg. They're all investors, have been out here for many, many years. They talk about tech, California, the present, the future. Occasionally, they get in really big arguments. And anyhow, Friedberg is just super interesting because he's really steeped in kind of deep science, deep tech, biotech. And he runs something called the Production Board, which is a holding company for a stable of startups that he's backed and helped start that are working on all kinds of like, you know, the real big, deep science problems that are really at the forefront of the issues that we're talking about from agriculture to food production and genomics. And of course, before he started the production board, his previous company was called Climate Corporation. The Climate Corporation, he sold that to Monsanto back in 2013 for a billion dollars. And anyhow, the production board this month raised $300 million to really kind of double down on what they're up to. And their backers include Bailey Gifford, the big investment manager, Alphabet, and very interestingly, Coke Disruptive Technologies, which is the venture arm of Coke Industries. And for those of you who don't know, the Coke brothers are these wildly wealthy fossil fuel billionaires who run this very large conglomerate. And they, of course, have been a very aggressive funder over many, many years of groups that have either sought to deny, derail, or delay 
will really undermine the idea of climate change and then derail policies that would seek to kind of address it. But Coke Disruptive Technologies, it's run by Chase Coke, who's the son of Charles, I believe. They've invested in the production board. And I just think it's a really interesting example of what we're seeing here, where you're starting to see a shift, even amongst those who stand to lose out and potentially lose out hugely from climate change and the shift away from fossil fuels and toward, you know, uh, dealing with the carbon problem, whether that's oil companies, big food like Cargill, Coke themselves, and they're putting money in. And of course, they've done this before. And when I say they, I'm talking about kind of, you know, the traditional big industries have put money into these areas and then pulled back when things didn't quite work out. But this time feels different again, just because of how visceral and how real climate change is feeling and getting for more and more people around the world. Um, And I think there's a real awakening that's happening, certainly out here in Silicon Valley, around not only their urgency to address climate change, but more importantly, and a bit more crassly, the opportunity. Because no one is going to invest at scale unless they think you can make a lot of money doing it. And there's just a whole huge new waterfront of opportunity that is being pushed by, again, these effects of climate change happening in such a real devastating way for more and more people. And then you have governments putting in new policies. You have the big incumbents starting to recognize this reality and react. Um, So I just think it's a really interesting time. And Friedberg, he's great. He has a real fluency with a lot of the numbers and figures and kind of the dynamics that are happening right now. And of course, he knows, you know, the science end of things backwards and forwards. So I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's a really fascinating conversation. And like I said, it ends on a hopeful note. It's pretty scary times, but I think you really enjoy the conversation. You come out, um, I think, maybe feeling better. But either way, it's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, I give you Dave Friedberg, the founder of the production board. Enjoy. I reached out because I saw your announcement about the production board and your recent funding and listeners of this podcast will know that especially over the past year or so, I've become more and more interested in this idea of climate tech and in kind of investing in this world, both in terms of mitigation and kind of breakthrough technologies to help get us out of this mess. But it still feels like it's a pretty rare thing. It's becoming less rare, but a rare thing in in Silicon Valley where you have this concentration of big brains who are often not looking at this, but looking at other things which seem far less urgent. Um, So I followed you guys for a while and I saw the announcement. I said, I thought it would be a good chance to talk. And I was wondering if I was just, before we got on, I was looking through some of your tweets and there was a big kind of tweet storm you did last month about the mega drought. Yeah. And I thought that would be a good way to frame kind of what is happening out here in the world and a kind of a high level. And that also seems to be a good framing for what you're doing at the production board. So, yeah, I mean, that mega drought tweet was predicated after kind of a series of data came out, all of which were apparent to me and pretty alarming. And in aggregate kind of paints a picture that it's literally the frog boiling in the uh, pot kind of tale here. And like we reached 0% snowpack in the entire state of California, I think by June 30th this year, or June 1st, which had never happened before for the entire mountain range of California, all the mountains in California that have no snow on them, have, have never happened at that point in the year before. 
normally takes you know six mm. months for it to all burn off if, if it burns off which it often doesn't you know we were seeing record low as a result stream flow many municipalities and much of california's electricity production comes from hydroelectric facilities which depends on that snowpack at the same time record temperatures and this uh, dry weather has created record low moisture in kind of forest land. California alone has, uh, I think, over 100 million acres of forest land, as we've seen record burning last year. And now I think this year we're, we're on pace to beat it. And so there's just a series of conditions to me that, you know, it's like we're waking up to the fact that uh, many of the longer range economic consequences and kind of the consequences of like living in a new world are suddenly upon us. And it's like we're not paying attention to it. We're uh, we're, we're kind of missing the uh, forest for the trees here, and, and we pay attention. Oh my gosh, these houses burnt down in Napa or whatever, and you know we're missing kind of what's really going on, the bigger story here. So yeah, you know it's it's a critical moment, but it's been a critical moment for a while. Yeah. So when you say like uh, we are waking up to this moment, I'm not sure if we are. You know, I grew up in California. I lived in the UK for 15 years, and then I came back or 13 years, two years in Spain, but I was gone 15 years, I came back. And I've talked to a lot of my friends here. And you know, it's like fire season wasn't a thing growing up, not like it is now. Yeah, I grew up in Southern California, never the case. Yeah. And I have friends and family and, and we're, we're all talking about like, where do we go during fire season? Like, should we get a vacation home that's like in the Midwest or something? Absolutely. But it, it's not clear to me that people are changing their behavior or companies. I mean, I guess things are slowly moving in that direction. But I guess that's one of the interesting things out here is, you know, I write about tech and interview people about tech week in, week out. And, you know, the bias is still not surprisingly towards software and things like that, because it's, you know, we know what software does, and we know what the returns they can generate, what you are doing, and the kind of this world is much longer, it feels like and much less certain, but the opportunity seems huge. Yeah, that's a good framing, right? I mean, capital finds its way to like every molecule and life form and organism finds its way to grow fastest, right? And so capital will flow into business models and into sectors that can grow that capital. And so we see software getting a lot of capital because you can have low costs and high leverage and high growth. And, uh, you know, historically, we found that capital doesn't find its way into some of the seed tech stuff. Now, there have been fits and starts. There was a clean tech era about 15 years ago. And the venture returns on those portfolios were the worst, like since the dot-com boom, none of those businesses became businesses. Uh, <laughs> you know, they were all kind of R&D experiments. And, and this is a critical point, right? To change old industry, climate tech, as it's often kind of referred to, has to change substantively uh, the economic model of a scaled system. And that requires technical breakthroughs, typically several technical breakthroughs. Mm. And so the bet you're taking with these sorts of investments is long range and high technical risk. It's not a market risk, execution risk. It's like, we don't know technically if we can get there with this capital. Yeah. And that's why you have a high rate of failure and a long cycle. And so you know the, the kind of risk-adjusted return profile on these businesses historically has been very unattractive. Now, in addition to kind of the urgency of climate change and people waking up to some of these things to some degree, there are, you know, kind of stated goals set by pension funds and other sources of capital for sustainability. You know, the Canadian pension plans have uh, an incredible set of metrics that they tie to sustainability. And their capital doesn't just seek higher returns, it seeks higher returns and key sustainability metrics. And that coupled with a low interest rate environment, means that you can make longer range, bigger bets than you were able to do when the interest rate environment was high, because you could just invest in a, you know, 10 year treasury and make 5%. Uh, 
Now the 10-year treasury makes nothing. Yeah. So therefore, you can put your capital in something that you hope will go 10x over 15 years, and you're able to make these longer bets. So we are seeing an influx of capital because of the institutions that are now prioritizing sustainability, institutions like BlackRock and, and the pension funds and others, and a low interest rate environment. And at the same time, there are incredible breakthroughs happening in genomics that fuel the technical competency that may allow some of these technical breakthroughs to be realized that can have these transformative effects on the economics of old industry. And I think that, that confluence of circumstances is why you're seeing this huge rise in capital chasing what, what, what people are now calling climate tech. Totally. And I want to get back to that. But just to finish up with the framing of uh, the other thing that when we talk about a mega drought, which I hadn't fully appreciated until kind of going through some of the, the stuff that you cited in these studies was that, you know, the mega drought they're talking about isn't like last year or the last few years. And it's not just California. It's the past 20 years. And it's like the southwestern of North America. Yes. That goes all the way up into Canada. Yes. And they frame it that way and say, you know, this we haven't had conditions like this since at least 1500, which kind of gives a sense of, you know, this isn't just, oh, you know, we've had a few bad fire seasons in California. Yeah. And remember, parts of planet Earth have at times been underwater and parts of them have been lush rainforests and then they've turned into deserts, right? Desertification is a process that takes time. And all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're living in a desert. I mean, imagine if all this beautiful forest land on the uh, just the western half of North America slowly burns off over the next decade, and there isn't enough moisture to revitalize that forest land and bring growth back. Those are the sorts of conditions that we're kind of facing, and it's not an overnight circumstance. It's that we are what we are seeing in this mega drought, which is a multi-decade process, is a reduction in moisture, a reduction as a result of vegetation, of life forms, of habitability, an increase of temperatures, which is a decrease of habitability, et cetera, that is you know, taking place over time. And it's been long predicted, but we are statistically in the midst of it, and it is getting worse. And you know, the, the data can kind of frame that conversation in a, in a really scary way as you, as you start to break out the data, which is what I tried to do when I put together that little tweet on there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the other thing I wanted to touch on in that is just the cascading effects of what is happening, because we tend to look at these things in isolation. But just to tick off a few that you referred to, you know, you have, and I know this from firsthand, we have a four year old and a two year old, and they're in daycare. And last year, I had to keep them home for several days because the air was so bad. Yeah, that they couldn't be outside and school was closed. But just this idea of air quality being a financial problem. And, you know, reducing productivity and business has to close, et cetera, and things like that. And then there's climate migration, water availability, food price inflation, and energy production issues because we have less water in our rivers and we need, you know, 10% of our power comes from hydro. So all of it together, you look at that and you're like, oh my goodness, all of this is connected. Yeah, I mean, the number of, for those listening that, that aren't familiar, because you don't live in this environment now, but there's what's called an AQI or air quality index, which is how, you know, what the density of uh, particulates of greater than two and a half millimeters in size are in the atmosphere or in the air that you're breathing. And as the AQI index, normally it should be around between zero and 50, and that's like healthy air and you can breathe it. And as the AQI goes above 100, you shouldn't be outside. As it's over 150, no one should be outside. And in Vancouver and Seattle yesterday, it was like over 400, which is uh, just insanity. Oh. So when those days happen, workers that work outside can't be working. And in California, we have a law that I think gives discretion at AQI over 100, but a mandate at AQI over 150 that workers can't be outside. 
and requirements on cool temperatures. So if the temperature is above 93 or something, they've got to be protected. And as it reaches extreme level, I think over 100 or something, they have to be inside. So, you know, somewhere around 30% or whatever the number is I pulled up of California's workers, and just, you know, and this, this is broadly across the western part of, the, of North America, work outside. And so as you have more hot days, as you have more days where the AQI is over 100, yeah. you have less workers. Who's going to pay the bill, right? Who's paying the insurance to cover their loss? What's going to happen to that lost productivity? Construction delays, you know, it has long range consequences as parts of the economy, just like we saw with COVID last year, stall out or shut down as a consequence of some of these effects of climate change. And so, you know, we often take this for granted. And, and even the cost of real estate and everyone starts fleeing California or fleeing Phoenix because it's too hot and the, or the power is not on often enough. You know, that if you take a trillion dollars of value off of the, uh, the residential real estate market, there are incredible shockwaves, economic shockwaves that will result. So these are the sorts of things that we're starting to see happen where everyone, you know, to your point, maybe people can handle hot weather and a little bit of smoky days. But once the power starts getting turned off half the time mm -hmm. or your kids can't go outside to play or suddenly, you know, nothing's getting built and food prices start to double, that's that's when everyone's like, well, wait a second, this is real. And so those are the sorts of consequences we're starting to see. Yeah. And when you put it all together, it's pretty daunting. And um, in your tweets, you said, basically, if we don't get our shit together, Earth becomes Mars, which I think is a quite succinct, um, pithy way to put it. But it feels real, especially being out here. And so with that framing... What's the story of the production board? How'd you get into it? What's the goal? And I think importantly, what's the structure? Because it's not your typical venture fund. So a little background. I, I left Google in 2006, and I started a company called the Climate Corporation. And that business was originally set up to simulate the weather and make weather insurance available to business owners that might suffer financial loss. So a ski resort that loses revenue because there's not enough snow or a golf course that shuts down when it rains, or a car wash that loses customers when it's raining too much, or, right. uh, or farmers that have a loss of revenue or loss of profit because of bad weather. So th that business I started in 2006, and we built all these models to simulate the weather and assess the probability of weather events. And we ultimately focused that business around agriculture. So we focused purely on farmers, and we acquired lots of data sets that modeled all the relationships of different activities farmers might be undertaking. What are they planting? What are they harvesting? What fertilizer, what seed are they using? What kind of soil do they have? And ultimately, the capabilities in our weather insurance product that we made available to farmers turned into an analytic software tool that helped farmers make better decisions and drive outcomes on their field. And so the business was bought by Monsanto in 2013. Mm. And, you know, today it's kind of the predominant software platform used in row crop agriculture around the world. I think nearly 200 million acres use the software. It's probably, you know, to give you some context, U.S. corn and soybean farmers, which is that kind of Midwest corn belt, make up about 160 million acres. So pretty sizable footprint on that software tool. Yeah. And I, I got broadly interested in the way that humans kind of make food and the tools and decisions we've made on how we kind of use the natural resources available to us on planet Earth to make the things we consume. And it was pretty evident to me that a lot of what we were doing was super inefficient and we could bring to bear novel technologies to rewrite, you know, many of these kind of old industries. So just as an example, you know, 50% uh, of human calories come from rice and wheat. And humans use about 40% of our global farmland to grow rice and wheat. And rice and wheat don't produce a complete protein. Rice takes a lot of water, wheat takes a lot of nitrogen. And so when you kind of look at all the crops available to humans, and you look at how much water and how much nitrogen and what the protein output is, one crop rises to the top of this kind of equation I wrote in a spreadsheet, which is quinoa. And so I got really interested in quinoa as an alternative to rice. 
So I bought a company up in Canada called Norquin, and we started running a plant breeding operation with our quinoa to try and increase the yield per acre, which allows us to drop the price per pound. And our goal is to make quinoa more affordable than rice. And we're kind of on track to do that now. You know, our website is quinoa.com, but we're mostly an ingredient supplier. We're the largest producer of quinoa in the world now. And our goal is to, you know, increase the footprint of quinoa and as a result, decrease the number of acres and increase the nutrition of the food supply chain for people around the world. And that's just one manifestation of something we can do differently in our global food systems. And especially as an adaptation to climate change where water availability is going down in some parts of the world and so on. And then I got really interested more broadly in tools of genomics where, you know, it was pretty clear that many of these systems that we have to make things on planet Earth are kind of these archaic systems, right? Like, how do humans make protein today? The way we make protein is largely the same way we made protein 10,000 years ago. Mm. We uh, take fertilizer, put it on the ground, which fertilizer used to be animal poop, you know, put it on the ground, grow plants, feed those plants to animals, kill the animals and turn them into meat and transport the meat. Yeah. And so 10,000 years ago, that's how we got protein. And today it's the exact same way we get protein, except we've industrialized each one of those steps. We make fertilizer in large ammonia plants. You know, we grow densely grown fields of corn and soybeans. Yeah. We grow animals in these densely grown feedlots, and we use a lot of carbon to move the meat around. And so the, the consequence is we've industrialized an ancient technology. We've made it marginally more efficient in each step of that chain, but the overall efficiency ratio is terrible. It's about a 30 to 1 energy conversion ratio to make animal protein, or 25 to 1 across all the, the, the blended average of all animal proteins. And I'm sure you've heard this a lot. Mm. So, you know, it's insane because what humans have available to us today is this ability to use DNA as a programming language to get microorganisms to make the molecules we want to consume. And the energy efficiency of using a microorganism like a yeast cell or an E. coli cell is orders of magnitude better than using an animal, right? An animal has to grow and cluck and produce heat and water goes in and out all the time. It's really inefficient as a way to make protein. So it turns out you can take the DNA from a chicken and put it in a yeast cell and you put the yeast cell in a big fermenter tank, much like you would make beer or wine. And you feed sugar water into that fermenter tank, much like you would do for beer and wine. And instead of the yeast producing alcohol, in this case, the yeast can produce animal protein because you put the DNA in the yeast on how to make animal protein. And now that yeast becomes a little mini factory, and that's called biomanufacturing. Yeah. And with that ability, we can make leather, we can make eggs, we can make cheese, we can make milk, all the proteins, all the materials, all the things that we use these old school industrial systems to make, we can program into microorganisms to make. So, you know, that's one area of interest. And, and so, you know, fast forward a little bit, I, I started making some investments and building some businesses in this vein, which is how do we use new technology to rewrite humanity systems of production and set up the production board as a holding company and contributed all these invested assets and, and Alphabet made a big investment when we started it. And then we've raised some additional capital over the years since. It's been about four years since we set it up, you know, culminating in this kind of announcement we did last week, uh, sharing some of the details on some of our businesses, as well as some of the investors that have come in. Ed, I saw a story that it was Larry Page who decided to invest in this business. Was that is that right? And if so, what was his motivation? I presume it was similar to yours and all the kind of that framing we were just talking about. Yeah, there are very few people I know who kind of are heads of businesses or industry or very wealthy who aren't thinking about this as a primary matter right now. Like, you know, it is so top of mind for everyone and everyone's like figuring out how do we address this issue? Yeah. Yeah, that's what the, exactly the question I was going to ask. It is top of mind, at least out here? I mean, it's top of mind. Uh, investors, industry folks, 
obviously heads of state. Mm. The problem is everyone's got legacy things that they're tending to. You know, Alphabet's got a legacy Google.com business. Heads of state have citizens that want stuff. Uh, other business owners have their media company they got to run, right? I mean, investors have a portfolio of old investments. So at the same time, I think people of consequence, meaning that they have influence, have also felt uh, somewhat impotent in the sense that it's very hard to find places to apply time and energy and capital to really move the needle with this problem. And so, yeah, it's certainly something I think everyone's interested in. So Larry Page, like like others, you know, super mm. interested, obviously very technical, very scientific. He and I had some conversations about some of the stuff I was working on and was interested in. And, you know, Alphabet, you know, we, we were kind of debating what, how we could work together and got this idea of uh, through, through other folks at Alphabet, why don't you just become an investor? So I set up a holding company. They invested some capital. I didn't want to run a fund. I didn't want to be a fund manager and you have all these incentives around raising more capital and taking management fees and all that sort of stuff. So it was really simple. It was like, I'll put my businesses and investments in here. You guys put some cash in. Yeah. You guys own some shares. I own some shares. And then over time, just like any other business, we've sold more shares and raised more capital and used that to build some of our businesses that we operate today. And crucially, I think that's one of the big differences that I think is worth drawing out is that it's not a venture fund. It doesn't have a timeline of a 10 years you have to invest, maybe do a follow-on investment and then ex exit. Because going back to where we started, this these are problems that aren't necessarily going to be solved, or at least the companies that you're working on aren't going to have reached the promised land in seven or eight years after you invest or whatever it may be. That's right. And, and, you know, the motivation is to have an outsized impact, you know, not to necessarily hit an IRR or multiple on capital targets in the near term. I certainly believe that the consequence of building something that has this degree of effect or these degrees of effect will have significant IRR and multiples on capital down the road. But the capital has to be patient and things have to be structured in a way to give you the time to take on the technical risk and work things through. You know, it's also, I think, important to note that, like you said, there's always going to be a set of problems to address. So if you do sell a company or it does start generating cash or you do take it public, you know, we can use that capital to reinvest in new things. We shouldn't have to take that capital and give it back to our shareholders if there's always more work to do, more problems to solve, more businesses to build. And so that's why I set it up as a holding company and, you know, uh, hope to kind of keep building it. And, you know, if we have knock on wood profits being generated by some of these businesses, or, you know, maybe one or two of them go public or something like that, you know, we can use that capital to continue building and um, doing more work. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
I was going to ask, I saw one of your investors is, uh, I think it's called Coke Disruptive Technologies, which I saw the name Coke, and I think it's run by Chase Coke, who is the son of Charles. But, you know, Coke Industries, let's say, not a prominent friend of the renewables industry or things like that. How did that come to be? Or do you think this is along the lines of like, you know, Cargill investing in lab-grown meat and things like this, where they're kind of like, it's a, they're investing in an option for what, you know, the future might look like. So like I said, you know, anyone in kind of old industry sees the writing on the wall, right? A Cargill, Bungie, ADM, they are all investing in alternative meat companies because everyone knows this is coming, right? The first principles thinking says, mm. this is going to work. It's going to change the world. It's going to be cheaper than traditional production. We need to make the change and we need to be there because our business is going to get wiped out if we don't. So, you know, everyone's seeing it, right? They don't want to be the next Eastman Kodak. I mean, look at what Saudi Aramco did, right? So the um, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia decided to take Saudi Aramco public, which is their big oil uh, company, which generates all their cash. And they sold off a chunk of the company and they've been selling off more of the company and they've been taking that money and they're investing it in emerging technologies that they believe will be consequential for the next century. And I think we're seeing all industrial leaders do exactly this. Now, you know, I have seen um, folks at Coke mm. be extremely innovative. And as Chase has said, and I think he said this publicly, they want to disrupt themselves. And whatever legacy business they have that isn't going to play a big role in the 21st and 22nd century, they want to make sure that they're going to be participating in the transition of their business to a different world. And so, you know, Chase runs this group called Coke Disruptive Technologies, which uses the capital generated at Coke to make investments in emerging technologies that they believe can have a consequential impact and disruptive effect on their existing businesses and grow them forward. So, um, you know, I, again, we're seeing it at lots of different businesses from Saudi Aramco to all the food companies, you know, Nestle and others making huge bets on sustainability and, and alternative proteins and so on. Mm. So across this, the global supply chains, I think we're seeing this behavior now. By the way, for, for folks that don't know Coke Industries very well, Tim Ferriss did an interview with Charles Coke that I think is really worth listening to. So um, I don't know if you've listened to it, but I would encourage anyone. He got a lot of flack for it. But, you know, go listen to the guy. And I think it's worth just hearing out kind of how they think and, and the philosophies and principles that they hold. I will definitely check that out. That's a that's a great rec. I want to ask you in terms of just the food pyramid, where do you think this happens first? And I was talking to an investor the other day, Jim Mellon, you may know him at Agronomics in the UK. He's got like a $100 million fund investing in kind of cultured meat and lots of other things. And he reckons that within 10 years, and you can debate about the timeline, um, he thinks, you know, we're kind of seeing the beginning of the end of milk or dairy. If you look at what is happening with companies like Oatly, and then we've had Arturo Elizondo on here from Clara. We talked about what he's doing with the, in eggs and whatnot. But do you think, like, say, the milk industry, for example, which has, you know, a huge carbon footprint, given the technologies that you can bring to bear now is, is kind of, you can see, it, you know, the end on the horizon? So there are two things happening in parallel, and we shouldn't conflate the two. One thing that's happening is consumers making sustainability choices that they will pay a premium for in developed markets. Yes. So this is basically rich people using their extra income to feel good about the purchases they're making. It's like buying a Gucci handbag or buying a Tesla car. It's a badge of honor. You wear it. You say, look, I've got this brand. I did this thing. I can do this. Drinking Oatly. Um, or fair trade coffee that's two bucks more than normal coffee, whatever. 
Precisely. And so, yeah. you know, you feel good doing that. Now, when the average income in a, a country kind of climbs above $60,000 a year, you start to see those choices happen. Leading up to that, what you see is people consuming more and getting cheaper food and just eating more calories. So you see this in Mexico, right? As Mexico's yeah. climbed up the, the developed ladder and uh, average per capita income has climbed in Mexico, they've now faced a consequential diabetes problem. Uh, and an obesity problem because they have more disposable income and they spend mm -hmm. it to buy more calories and it's causing health effects. And we saw that in the United States. And now the top of the United States, the top income bracket is losing weight and getting healthier and making sustainable food choices that cost more. Now, that is a very small percentage of the global population that has the luxury that rich people in America have to make those sorts of choices or rich people in Western countries have. Yes. In most of the world, like in China, where the average per capita income, I think is closer to $8,000 or $10,000. I haven't looked at it lately. You know, call it $10,000, send it 12,000, maybe in that range. As income grows, that person will buy more meat because they used to only be able to afford meat once a week. And now if they can afford meat daily, they will eat meat every day. And that is climbing the ladder. So 95% of the world's population roughly lives outside or will, by the end of the century, live outside of Western Europe and North America. And most of that population will still be climbing up that economic ladder. Yep. And as they climb up that economic ladder, they are looking to add calories and, and use the extra income they have. They are not making choices of sustainability. So yes, we are seeing interesting sustainability businesses, but they're really, to my notion, branding businesses. They're not moving the needle. If you get 5% of the world to stop drinking milk, it's not really going to change the consequence of milk production, dairy production, right? And, and so Oatly isn't going to solve that problem. It's more expensive than milk. Yeah. The question then is, how do you make milk that's less expensive than milk? And that's the technical problem that gets solved for the other 95%. And that's what companies like Clara and you know, Perfect Day and Geltor and Memphis Meats and you know, all these companies that are working on new technologies and life sciences to engineer cells to make those proteins without the animal and ultimately to make it cheaper than using the animal. Yes. When they have that, that commodity price breakthrough and they've become cheaper, that's when the world changes. And we're not there yet on any of these categories yet, on any of the big categories yet, right? We don't have meat that's cheaper than meat. We have soybeans that are cheaper than meat. We don't have milk that's cheaper than milk. We have milk. You know, we don't have <laughs> cheese that's cheaper than cheese. So yeah. we still have a lot of work to do to get there. But all the first principles analysis show us that the productivity rate, meaning how much grams per liter in a tank or whatever these cells can make these proteins for us, are such that we should be able to get there. We should be able to make animal proteins, chicken, beef, milk, cheese, fish, without the animal and make it cheaper. Um, it's just a function of time. So, you know, a decade, two decades, three decades, I don't know. But uh, there's a lot to be built from here to there. One of the key things to note is most of these systems re rely on bioreactors. And bioreactors are these systems where you, you know, like fermentation tanks where you grow these things. Today on planet Earth, we only have about 25 million liters of fermentation capacity to make stuff like this. About 20 million of that is used to make beer and wine. Hmm. And about 5 million is used for other purposes. And only about a million of it is available for rent. So there's not a lot of tanks out there because if you were to try and make all the world's animal protein using these tanks, you would need about 50 billion liters of capacity. So we've got to grow the capacity of fermentation tanks by about 2,000 fold from here to there. So in addition to having these technical breakthroughs and these businesses kind of making this thing work, 
We've also got a lot of infrastructure, probably between 100 and $500 billion of infrastructure to build to make all of this stuff. Mm. And so a lot of stuff's got to come together for us to get there. But yes, if we get there, we will not only have an effect on food and the, the environmental cost of food and the, uh, the greenhouse gas and, and carbon emission cost of food production, we can also make materials like plastics and leather and lots of things that we use in our everyday life that traditionally require petrochemicals and other sorts of you know, carbon emitting processes, and we can use these biomanufacturing processes to make them. So that's the big hope and the big bet a lot of folks are now chasing. So just going back to the production board, where is your energy focused? Because as you say, it's kind of like, the problems are infinite, when you're talking about kind of the planet, where we are, how it works, what's going wrong, etc. In terms of a business that is set up to you know, upend or dramatically remake how certain things happen with the interest of, you know, the improvement of life generally on earth. What are you focusing on? Where are you focusing your energy and your money and your time? Yeah, I I mean, I would say a general framework for us is at least 10x improvement in the energy cost, time and or carbon footprint of an existing system, at least 10x. So if it's kind of an iterative thing, it's not that interesting. And it has to have kind of the, you know, and this is an off overused term in Silicon Valley, but it has to have the makings of a platform, Mm. meaning that some core technology or capability can allow you to make and do lots of different things. So it's not just a single point solution or a single product, but the platform, as it might be called, can be harnessed to make different products over time, each of which takes less money to make than the prior one because the platform scales, right? That's kind of the, the general framework for how to think about what a platform, you know, might be. So we have a, a plant genetics company called Ohalo. We're, we're leveraging some breakthroughs in genomics. I won't get into the details because I don't think we talked about it publicly to create novel plant species yeah. that can have significant improvements in yield and water use and so on. I see. And so there's a, a set of technologies that we've developed. And those technologies allow, uh, we can apply to multiple different crops and multiple different plant species, reinvent those crops genetically. By the way, this is non-GMO. It's not like we're introducing new genetic traits from other species. It's, it's legally and technically non-GMO, but it's, yeah. it's about using new techniques and gene expression and gene editing to change substantively some of the characteristics of those crops and, and make them extremely more productive and more valuable you know, in terms of how they use our natural resources to make stuff. We have another company called Canna, where we're developing a molecular beverage printer. It's effectively a cartridge-based system where one cartridge can print tens of thousands of different beverages, almost like an inkjet printer. Everything from beer to wine to coffee to tea to juice to soda. What? Um, and so there's a lot of hardware <laughs> technology and chemistry that's gone into designing that system over the last couple of years. Uh, Canada.com, we're hiring. So you know, <laughs> part of the reason we announced our funding round is we're doing a lot of hiring and we wanted some, some of our companies <laughs> to kind of come out of the stealth mode and talk about what they're doing a little bit. So we're obviously thrilled about that. You know, Humans spend $2 trillion a year on bottled beverages. It's like a trillion dollars a year on beer and wine and a trillion dollars a year on coffee, tea, juice, and soda. And, you know, to make a a liter of OJ takes 40 liters of water. I mean, that's how much water we pour on an orange tree to make orange juice. And oranges are 93% water and 7% sugar, and less than 1% is the molecules that make up all the flavor and odor and color and mouthfeel. Grapes take, you know, 600 liters of water to make a liter of wine. And a grape, you know, similarly is like 88% water, 12% sugar, and less than 1%. The chemicals that make up the odor, color, flavor, and mouthfeel of the wine, we convert that sugar into alcohol in grapes. Right. And, and so you go down the list, and most of the beverages we're making are mostly water, like vast majority. And less than 1% of most beverages are differentiated from each other by just a couple of molecules. 
So the idea is you can put those molecules in a printer and you can use water in your home and you don't have to, you know, bottle up and transport 20 trillion liters of water using carbon and plastic bottles and so on around the world and just, you know, differentiate the water in your home using a, a printing device, a molecular printer, as we call it. And so, you know, we're really excited to share more on this business in the next couple of months. I think we're going to be talking about it more publicly and showing off some of the tech we've built. But obviously, that is exactly the sort of business we're looking for. We can reduce the the carbon footprint, the energy, the cost, and the time mm. of the $2 trillion bottled beverage industry by at least 10x. And, you know, our, our math kind of shows significantly more. So consumers will pay less than what they're paying today for beverages. They'll have infinite options on demand to them. We don't use any carbon and plastic to move stuff around like we do today. We, we're not shipping water in bottles. And uh, we don't have to waste all of this land and energy and water on making water-based beverages. So, um, you know, we have another company called Triple Bar Bio, which we believe will reduce the cost and time of these synthetic biology programs, like I mentioned earlier, where you edit cells and get them to make stuff, by 10,000-fold. So we've developed really interesting chip-based technology to effectively evolve cells very quickly on a chip to achieve our target objectives with what we want that cell to make. And so companies that are in this space of trying to make animal proteins without animals can do so for a fraction of the cost and time using triple bars technology. And so, again, like one, one platform means you can make lots of different things using this technology capability, huge reduction in cost and time, and hopefully we'll have a kind of a global effect when it works. So, so we're always looking for new and emerging discoveries in science and, and engineering that when we combine them with other interesting engineering or science that's out there, can have a 10x improvement in those metrics of energy, cost, time, and carbon, can have a massive impact across one of these massive industries, and can act like a platform, meaning we can do lots of different things with it. And then we will do an R&D project in-house, make sure it works, get the right team working on it, and build the business around that team and give them capital. So that's kind of how we operate. Right. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was water, and you kind of answered it already with Kana, which sounds... I'm fascinated by that idea. So I definitely want to hear more about that company as you guys kind of come out of stealth or whatever it may be. But it does feel like water, especially, and again, it's top of mind because we're in California, but everything from companies that rely on it and need to start modeling, you know, what happens when there isn't enough of it or enough of it when they need it, that kind of stuff. Is there a lot happening or not much happening around kind of water as an input to virtually everything, you know, a huge swathe of industry. And it's just becoming more and more kind of unpredictable. There's already too much of it or not enough. Yeah. Um, so the biggest use of water in California is in the Central Valley agriculture. Yeah. Now, let's just speak about human survival for a second. Humans need calories. And if you read the book, uh, The Martian, you know, this, this might translate well, but um, mm -hmm. you need calories, you need protein, your body needs to consume protein, because uh, you can't make all the proteins you need just from carbohydrates and fat. And we need certain micronutrients. So, you know, if you were to ask the question, like, how much of what we grow and eat in the Central Valley is a critical supply chain need, the unfortunate truth would be that much of what's grown in the Central Valley are great food products that we all love and are important to the, to the supply chain but maybe don't end up being critical. And that's where mm. you'll see a lot of sources of calories, which is rice and wheat. As I mentioned, half of calories come from rice and wheat. Potatoes are the third largest source of calories on the earth. And, uh, you know, animal proteins end up kind of being, you know, top calorie sources for humans. 
And so where is the follow on effect going to be most heavily felt? Well, you know, the price of tomatoes will quadruple or quintuple. The price of lettuce will quintuple. You know, if you still want to buy tomatoes and lettuce, you're going to end up buying it from one of these indoor farming companies who use less water, less land and have a more reliable supply chain because they don't depend on wells. And almonds and nuts and other things maybe become more of a luxury product than they've been able to be historically because we've had readily available water in the Central Valley. And so I don't think that the failure of water systems in California are going to have a consequence on human nourishment. You know, we'll still be able to get calories and proteins and micronutrients. Micronutrients, by the way, we can synthesize all of them. We don't need plants and vegetables to make them, which is uh, an incredible feat of science. And so, you know, we'll still need calories. We'll still need rice, wheat, quinoa, potatoes. But, uh, you know, I think the the consequence of the failure of the water system and and, and the aquifers drying out in Central Valley will be, you know, higher priced, what's called specialty crops in the ag market. Uh, which are these um, different kinds of vegetables and so on and nuts and so on that um, are not necessarily critical to nourish, saving off malnourishment. And so, yeah, that, that's what we'll end up seeing probably in California, you know, as the biggest consequence. We just saw yesterday mm. Lake Mead hit a record low. And as a result, the stream flow through the Colorado River is about to drop to a record low. And so for the first time ever, there is water rationing. So they hit this new rule, which has never been hit before. And they are now going to ration water out of the Colorado River to farmers in Arizona. Wow. This has never happened before. Wow. So I think something like 40 million people in the western United States depend on this water supply. And so they are now going to be out of water uh, or not going to be out of water. They are now going to have rationing. And this is what people are saying is the first step in what may be a very consequential set of steps that are about to follow mm. where, um, you know, the, the water availability because of this decrease in stream flow of the Colorado River could cause a massive shift in population, right? Like, why would you live in Arizona if you're going to have your water ration and the temperatures are 140 all the time? Uh, and, you know, if some of these hydroelectric facilities start to dry out and, you, and you're getting your power turned off, you're not going to be able to survive there because you need air conditioning to survive. So these are the sorts of things I think we'll start to see the uh, the consequence of water having a bigger impact. In California, fresh water supplies, I think we can still ration. I, I'm not an expert in this area, so forgive me if I misquote. But I think there's plenty of rationing that can and will go on that will maintain fresh water supplies, not for all, but for a lot of the population in California you know, even as these, as these drought conditions persist, but the farmers are going to get hard hit and certain, you know, uh, I think industries are going to get hard hit as we make keeping home supplies, municipal water, the, the top priority. So climate migration, I mean, it's already happening here and well, maybe it's happening more than we know, but climate migration feels like that's a thing that's going to be a thing. Yes. I mean, you and I both have friends that are leaving California because they can't stand the smoke for three months of summer. And I think, you know, I don't know how you're going to survive I don't think you're going to have people running to Vancouver this year when they had 400 AQI yesterday. I mean, that is literally, you can't be outside. Uh, if you haven't seen the photos, go online, look at the photos of Vancouver yesterday. It's like the apocalypse. And so, yes, we will certainly be seeing people migrate out of these places from the smoke and also water availability and power. Um, there's also idiocy in public policy. You know, the uh, the reduction of nuclear power supplies in California I think is one of the biggest mistakes and step backs we have made in kind of the modern era with this kind of anti-technology movement. On a net basis, the risks associated with nuclear power are far outweighed by the benefits. It is a clean power source. And in fact, we could do a lot of desalination with nuclear power using existing desal techniques and technologies and the free and available power that comes out of these these nuclear systems, these nuclear um, power stations. So we've over-regulated and chased ourselves away from a very clean and stable power supply, which could drive a more available water supply 
and we're choosing to not do it. Um, again, if we were to land on Mars and we were to find that there's water in those ice caps and we're going to need to make water for ourselves, we're not burning coal and we're not running them off of solar. We're running friggin' <laughs> nuclear power stations up there. And we're going to use those nuclear power stations to create heat, to melt ice caps, to, you know, filter those ice, that ice, that, that water, and to give ourselves water. And here we are taking steps backwards as the Earth is turning into Mars. You know, it's, uh, it's pretty silly. But we'll snap out of it. It's just this, you know, once everyone gets a kick in the butt, they'll kind of realize, hey, technology can save us right. uh, more than it can hurt us. And, you know, we'll, we'll go back and kind of fix some of these mistakes I feel we're making. Well, then just before I go, just to kind of circle back to one of the things you mentioned at the top, and this idea that like, you know, whether it's the Koch brothers, or Larry Page, or whomever else, what is your sense? Because you've been obviously on this coal face, so to speak, longer than a lot of people, at least out, out here in the in the kind of the tech world. Do you have a sense that there is a shift happening either in investment dollars or talent flow? Because it feels like, you know, in the early 2000s, you know, a lot of the smartest people ended up going to Wall Street because that's where the money was. Then that kind of shifted to tech. And I'm just wondering if more and more people are waking up, whether it's because they're just deeply concerned about this and there's opportunity and there's breakthroughs happening that you're seeing a fundamental shift in who's coming here and the money, the resources, the people relative to when you were doing this, you know, 15 years ago. I want to tell you two stories for folks on the, that, that are listening that haven't heard of them before. There's, there's a book called The Alchemy of Air. It's worth reading. And it starts out with a conference that took place in the early 20th century, late 19th century in Germany, where there was a, a convention talking about the food supply. So humans had this massive population swelling because we kind of industrialized agriculture to a degree and were able to grow large farms using fertilizer and, and high yields using fertilizer. Where do we get all that fertilizer from? We got ships off the coast of uh, Chile and Peru, and, and we um, found these islands, the, the guano islands, and it was tens of stories high bat guano. We took that bat guano, we put it on the ships, and we brought it back to Europe, and we used it as fertilizer. And that fertilizer helped Europeans grow high-yielding uh, farms and feed the continent. Mm. And the bat guano was running dry. You know, It was clear that within a couple of years, we were going to mine it all away. And there was this huge technical challenge. You know, we are now eating X calories per day. And without fertilizer, the number of calories uh, per day is going to drop by 90%. Yeah. Oh, my God, the world is in crisis. And guess what happened? Technology saved the day. And there was this technique called the Haber-Bosch process that was developed where these scientists figured out how to compress atmospheric nitrogen. 70% of the atmosphere around us is made of nitrogen. They compressed it down to 200 times atmospheric pressure ran it over a little iron rod and zapped it with electricity. And it turns out that broke the nitrogen bond of the nitrogen gas and ammonia, which is NH3, started to drip out. And ammonia is a fertilizer. And that became the source of fertilizer that fed all of our farms. And today is still the predominant form of fertilizer used worldwide on all farms in every country on planet Earth. It is an incredible scientific achievement. Yeah. And, and it, was, it was engineering. It was just brute force engineering crisis mode. Let's go solve the problem. In the mid-20th century, there's a guy named Norman Borlaug who raced to solve the problem of increasing population, dwindling yields, predominantly in Asia, but, but also in Latin America. And he, um, he developed advanced techniques for rapidly breeding wheat and other crops to increase their yield. And within a few years, he got these wheat crops, the seed from wheat, to be so high yielding that he delivered it to India. And the Indian farmers raced to produce more wheat. Suddenly, yields climbed through the roof. 
and the population was fed and they, he staved off the loss of, you know, potentially um, hundreds of millions of lives, as has been predicted. Many people said it was the most consequential act of the 20th century. And you can read plenty of books about Norman Borlaug. Yeah. We're going to be in the same moment here, right? Like <laughs> everyone sees this problem, everyone with money, everyone with, with resources, and everyone's trying to solve it. And we all kind of look linearly when we're sitting somewhere. But the truth is, as all of these resources compound, the effect will be nonlinear. And we will see breakthroughs in technologies that we do not predict today that will have a material effect on the amount of carbon in this atmosphere, the way that we produce things, and the way that we are going to kind of adapt and survive through this phenomenon over the next uh, century, which is going to be, you know, it's really going to test the survival of our species. But I, I, I am optimistic. And I do believe that because of the attention and resourcing that I see going into the problem set, I, I can't predict which and where, but we are going to have nonlinear results and it, it's, it's going to be needed, but it's, it's going to be profound. Yeah, so I'm optimistic and, and I see everyone kind of coming at the problem. And I think in aggregate, we will have solutions just like we've seen in the last with human ingenuity over the last centuries. So, you know, government problems and policy problems and societal problems aside, science and engineering hopefully will save the day again. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Dave for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening and for all the ratings and all the reviews and the occasional little drop in the bucket from the ACAST supporter feature, which is just awesome. I got another one uh, last week. It's just a nice little reminder that you all are out there and enjoying it. So thank you all for doing that. We will be back next week with more. In the meantime, find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And that is it. Have a fabulous weekend. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Want more out of this podcast? Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley to read articles based on these interviews, broader discussions of the topics covered here, and of course, the amazing work of all my colleagues across the rest of the paper, all for less than one pound a day. Start your free trial now by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. 